exciting Africa listeners. Uh, it is with a very heavy heart that I'm bringing this special episode to you. Uh, we at the London School of Economics are incredibly sad about the passing of our dear colleague, Professor Tandika Makandawire. We've been very touched, however, by messages and tributes of scholars from across the world who've shared how he has impacted them and their ideas. Um, last year, I interviewed Tandika for our podcast, Citing Africa, but we only used some clips from it in our episode on the history of knowledge production. So I thought it might be a nice idea to share that whole interview to help people remember him and his ideas and also to remember his kind personality and his sense of humor, which definitely comes out in the interview. So in this interview, we discuss the impact of structural adjustment on knowledge and on economics. We also talk about the role of Cadesria in strengthening the intellectual autonomy of African-based researchers and research institutes, and also just a whole lot of other things. Um, Re-listening to it in order to edit it and put it together for this episode just made me realize like all the little contributions that Tandika made in the space of a single conversation. So I hope people will get something from it. It will inspire them and it'll help us remember his legacy uh, as we move ahead. Just a note that I hesitated about whether to edit anything out of the interview, whether just to leave it kind of raw as it is. Um, and after talking to some of uh, Tandika's friends um, and colleagues, I've, I decided just to leave it as it is. So this is a raw version of our interview. Um, hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Well, my name is Tandika Mkandawira. I'm professor at London School of Economics in the Department of international development. So I'm going to start by asking a very general question, which is what does decolonization of higher education mean to you? Well, initially it meant uh, having more Africans teaching in universities. Mm -hmm. And then people added on things like a more African-oriented curriculum. Mm -hmm. Today, there's much new debate about decolonization. Some of the language is reminiscent of the <coughs> this idea of, of the 60s. But I think the new debate is much broader in terms of what is object of attack. It's much mm -hmm. bigger than ours. But in our, in our generation, it was really uh, Africanizing the university, meaning more African faculty. Mm -hmm. There was much less debate about, about content mm -hmm. than there is today. Mm -hmm. And do you think that change is good? The kind of deepening or widening? Some of it is intelligent. It, it makes sense that you know you, uh, there must be some kind of a uh, whatever is investors do must be relevant to the African context. Some of it is a little bit wild. I think that the, it fragments the world much, much more sharply than the world is. Yeah. And what's, what do you mean by that? In the sense that we are mutually intelligible, so I don't think it's difficult for a non-African mm -hmm. to understand me. But sometimes it makes impression as if we're unintelligible, you know, that, you know. Yeah, that I think is unnecessary. I still believe in some kind of universal thing about knowledge, you know. We're switching gears and just, uh, I'd like you to explain the kind of rate of return argument that the World Bank made against African higher education. Well, the World Bank did some, they, they came up with a study, it was done by a guy, a Greek name, I can't remember now, but uh, the conclusion was that the rate of return for the individual was higher for higher education than for primary school. Mm -hmm. 
and that therefore people would be willing to pay for higher education because the rate of return is high. From that, they came to conclusion against funding universities. And do you think that this legacy, this way of thinking, can still is around today? Yes, yes, yes. In what sense? Because, and you can see it in Europe in a way, in many countries in Europe, university education is free, and, and that has not been challenged. Mm-hmm. But once you challenge it, it's very difficult to go back to it. Because it's like you've broken a taboo, and World Bank did break a taboo <laughs> of state funding of, of university education. Yeah. You know? And also they did intellectually challenge a major aspect of development, which was human capital is important. Mm-hmm. And that is still with us. It's with us, it's shown by the, the low budgets for higher education, the growth of this fly-by-night private universities, and, and Africa's serious shortages in human, human, uh, human skills. Mm-hmm. And you think it's kind of irreversible to a certain extent? Yes, yes. If you take China, under Mao Zedong, there was a lot of disruption of the university system. Mm-hmm. But to reverse that, mm-hmm. so it can be reversed, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You think yeah. it can be reversed? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It, okay. it is happening already, it's being reversed already. And there are two reasons for that. One, the middle class, mm-hmm. who can no longer send their children to Europe mm-hmm. or America, are worried about the quality, quality of universities. Mm-hmm. For the first time, you hear more, you hear debates in parliament mm-hmm about the funding of universities. Mm-hmm. And quite a number of countries, substantial improvements in the salaries of staff selling girls, where the faculty are very well paid. Mm-hmm. I mean, they say that. The faculty mm-hmm. themselves say they're well paid. Mm-hmm. So there has been this the demand for the domestic universities mm-hmm. by the middle class mm-hmm. and the absence of mm-hmm. top-quality private universities. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what's bizarre in Africa now is that the state universities, which are still the the best universities in the country, mm-hmm. may increasingly be for reserved for the rich mm-hmm. who send their kids to the best secondary schools to mm-hmm. qualify mm-hmm. for f- public universities. You know? mm-hmm. And the poor will end up going to fee-paying private universities, mm-hmm. bad universities. That's, that's the, the danger right now. So you're writing a book on Africa's Great Depression. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by an African Great Depression? Well, I, that was not the title of the book. <laughs> okay. It would be about that. I plotted a graph of the American Depression and then the African Depression, and it, I was struck by the fact that the African Depression was was deep, as deep as, if not deeper than the American Depression, uh, but it definitely lasted longer. Mm-hmm. And this deep, or five-year dip, five, six-year dip in the U.S. Mm-hmm. was called the Great American mm-hmm. Depression. And ours been going on for 20 years, and mm-hmm. it is not called a great depression. And mm-hmm. the, the recent re- recession is called a great recession. It mm-hmm. lasted two years, mm-hmm. two, three years. So words matter, you know, that maybe the choice of words that were used by the African crisis somehow tended to down- downplay the disaster that occurred. You know. mm-hmm. It was a major disaster, but, you know, and I think that that language of, like a crisis, or uh, did or did not really capture mm-hmm. as I think a word like an expression like the Great African Depression would have captured mm-hmm. uh, because it was a, a great depression. Mm-hmm. Yes, people often think of the financial and the infrastructural impacts of this long period of austerity within African countries. But how do you think this period has reshaped knowledge infrastructures within African countries? If you go to 
most African universities, the old ones, uh, one thing that immediately strikes you is that the founders of these universities had lots of faith in them and they built quite impressive infrastructure. You can see these old buildings are really very impressive. And then came the financial cri- the crisis and then the World Bank's position and there was a dramatic fall. You know, I remember one of the cases I can never forget was in going to a library a bookshop, in, a library in Ivory Coast, and there were no books anymore. You know, mm-hmm. and that regression of our institutions, you know, is is, is still there. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. some you know some universities have they've been some rebuilding, cleaning up the world. I mean, I was very impressed with the University of Ghana. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they've done a lot of you know, but we have lost these years. You know, uh, mm-hmm. when you think about the loss of uh, dep- of this Great Depression, that it's not that we went down and it came up. You have to f- think. How much was was lost, and how long it would take just to get back that loss, you know? Mm-hmm. And we are very far from doing that. And it did something which has be- turned out to be very difficult to reverse. There, there was a massive brain drain. I had written a paper once about the, the three generations of Africans. Mm-hmm. The first generation, post-colonial generation, they went abroad. Um, I belong to that generation. We went in the sixties to study abroad. Mm-hmm. And some of the older ones, by the end of the 60s, were coming back to constitute the first African professoriate, if you like. The second generation went in the 70s, went to the U.S. mostly, came back, and just as soon as they came back, the crisis hit, they left and went back. The third generation never came back. The fourth generation is now being trained in African universities. And... uh, Fairly difficult conditions, and they, and sometimes you go, you can look at the, st- the faculty structure. You have mm-hmm. old professors who are retiring, mm-hmm. and then junior faculty. There's nothing in between here, mm-hmm. because that those two generations didn't come back. Mm-hmm. And what do you think is the bigger impact of, of that kind of those generations being lost? The structure of our investors is a problem. You can tell that the faculty is aging. Mm-hmm and there may be no immediate replacement. Mm-hmm. Or people make short, shortcuts and you know, replace them with my perhaps not fully qualified faculty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in terms of what, what we know about African countries and the way that we think about the developmental challenge in African countries, how did the loss of those sort of people who had been invested in, yes, yes. how did that, do you think, contribute to the way in which people theorize about Africa? Yeah, I think uh, one thing that happened almost immediately is that a lot of people who would, who would have documented the crisis mm-hmm. were no longer in Africa. Mm-hmm. They came and went and they left. Mm-hmm. And I was in Croatia and we tried to mobilize some of those people, uh, but they were no longer in Africa, they were abroad. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, has affected scholarship on Africa in general. You cannot have scholarship on any continent uh, which has no base, which has no context with uh, uh, local scholarship. You know? mm-hmm. And, and you know, a lot of journals that were published in Africa collapsed. When I worked in Kodestria, actually, it was a, I read an ask once by a French writer who was attacking Kodestria for being a conduit for the brain drain because a lot of our top people ended up being in the U.S. You know? mm. <laughs> it was very frustrating, actually, when you think about it because you identify through our work, our networks, certain scholars emerged, and then they were plucked out, <laughs> taken abroad. Yeah. I think African governments didn't react intelligently 
to what was happening. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Because they could have probably done what I understand China does, to mm-hmm. say, okay, you're, so you're in America, we know you're settled there, mm-hmm. but we want to buy at least two months of your time a year to come and teach here. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Now there are a lot of new schemes. I think Carnegie has been involved in one of the schemes where they're asking faculty abroad to either mentor faculty, you know, students at home or to, you know. Uh, so we could have, with, I mean, with the new technologies, it allows a little bit of that, that we could mm-hmm. exploit the time of some of the scholars mm-hmm. abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them, you can exploit their bad conscience by, because they would like to do something useful, you know. Mm-hmm. They'd be willing to, you know, if you gave, gave them a ticket and a bedroom somewhere to live on for three months, uh, they would teach so like emotional resource mobilization. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Really use all your uh, moral incentives, you know. Many governments in the world, countries like Israel and India, mm-hmm. and they're doing that. They're, they're accepting that mm-hmm. their scholars are, are now resident. Mm-hmm. But you know, Africa is a very populous continent, so they say, oh no, you left the continent, you know, you betrayed the continent, so that was it. And in specifically when it comes to economics, how do you, what impact do you think the Structural Adjustment Era and the Great Depression had on the economics profession within African countries? Well, <laughs> most African economists before structural adjustment were what people call structuralists. Okay? Mm-hmm. And econ- then became the structural adjustment. The people who were running with structural adjustment felt, first of all, they were upset that they met opposition from the existing mm-hmm. economists. Mm-hmm. Massively, I mean, almost all of them were against structural adjustment. So they decided to create their own economist. Mm-hmm. And they set up a network, the African Economic Research Consortium, uh, to train in macroeconomics. Mm-hmm. Now, the tragedy of African training of economists is that it's been so, in a way, donor-driven. Yeah? Even the first, the first generation, we were supposed to be trained in planning methods. Mm-hmm. So you did the input-output, the national income accounting. And then people went back. In the 70s, they say, oh, no, well, you need, what we need really is project evaluation managers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there were new manuals were written on input, you know, on cost-benefit analysis and project evaluation. Mm-hmm. As soon as those people came back with their PhDs, you know, they were told, no, the issue is stabilization. Mm-hmm. So they set up this net- network, mm-hmm. produced a lot of people who, to stabilize economies. Now, normally stabilization doesn't need many people. You need one man at the finance, Minister of Finance and one at the Reserve Bank to devalue a currency. You know, that's it. So, in the process, the specialized economics, economies for sectors, whether transport economics, health economics, disappeared. Mm. You know, that training did not exist. Now, that they've gone back to projects, in industrialization and projects, they're worrying about Africa has no project planners. We stopped training them in the 70s, in the 80s. Even when they were having these PRSPs, which suggested some idea of a national economy, mm. the, the donors themselves began to find that we don't have Africans who can write these documents. So the World Bank began writing them for us. Mm-hmm. You know, they write for you and you approve it and then they, are, they, they, they praise you for having written this wonderful build, you know, document. But uh, there, is a, there is a big gap mm-hmm. that we need. Mm-hmm. We don't have people who can write project documents, who can evaluate, you know, that mm-hmm. s- small skill like that mm-hmm. disappeared. You can read the do- uh, donor documents now. They're panicking. They search for mm-hmm. Africans who can write project proposals. In the period where African countries were enjoying growth and enjoying kind of a surplus, yes. did that not, did, was there not more of a kind of 
less donor driven economic yes, 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 yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. The donors have nothing to do with the universities. You know, the universities mm-hmm. are funded locally. When they wanted the economists for their project, they would train them, but, but that was specific. Mm-hmm. What happened in the 80s, they actually took over economics departments. Mm-hmm. You know, that's different. Mm-hmm. They actually started master's program, run from a hotel. Uh, but for universities, so it's, it, it was much more dramatic, yes. And that's why I think you can say that there is no lively debate in Africa uh, you know, among economists, definitely not, not that young generation. Do you think that in the recent years that has changed at all? No, I, I think these networks, they began producing economists, and they said they had worried about how to place them, you know. Mm. So they set up institutes, you know, they funded, they set up institutes and the African Capacity Building Foundation was funding these institutes which then employ these economists. Mm-hmm. So it, it went on for a long time, you know. I don't know where we are now, quite frankly. I, mean, I know that the, this ARC, for instance, they had broadened their agenda. They had worried about regional integration, about mm-hmm. poverty, and partly from some pressures from the Nordics and all that. Mm-hmm. But also I think there was no need for more, more stabilizers, you know. Mm-hmm. How, many, how, many can you, how many can you use to stabilize mm-hmm. the economy? In terms of the intellectual space at the moment, do you feel that there is intellectual space for young scholars to deviate from mainstream economics today? Yes and no, um, because this, this other stuff is still there. You know? yeah. But there have been new initiatives, you know. Um, I know in South Africa there was one network now on something to do with economics and justice. I have been active in a group called Ideas, which is, a, which is a, based in India, and we're trying to get more Africans you know, involved in that network. And generally, African governments themselves are not as orthodox as they were. Yeah, that probably is where you can see some signs of light. That, uh, uh, But I think universities have not, our economics department have not been courageous enough to, to push for an understanding of Africa that is not serving other people's interests. I mean, that's a do you think it's a lack of courage, or do you think it's that in order to be successful, you have to publish in a certain journal? Yes, yes. You know? Well, it's both. Eh? Uh, in Africa, it was worse than that, because many of young economists made money as consultants. Okay? Mm. So you don't, <laughs> you don't get a consultant if you're a Marxist or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so many of them, you, you, so you master the certain tools and the certain jargon and, mm-hmm. and you regurgitate that and you get more mm-hmm. contracts. Mm-hmm. It's a small market uh, dominated by few institutions, you know, and mm-hmm. those institutions, can, you can be off the mm-hmm. consultancy mm-hmm. market or not. And that has had a huge impact, especially in East Africa. I don't know about much, Nigeria perhaps less, much less Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. what do you think drives the amount of intellectual space that economists have? either in positive anyway. ways or negative ways. So right now, what is driving it in potentially positive ways? Economics, I think of all the social sciences, has, by describing, by giving itself this aura of being scientific, yeah, actually constrained everybody, you know, including in the developed countries, you know. You have very strange discourse about everything. Yeah, of course it's not realistic. Yeah, of course we missed out. We missed out the last crisis. Mm-hmm. We admit all these uh, things that we are not managing well, but then uh, the quotation mark scientific requirements mm-hmm. suggest that we should close our eyes to these untheorized realities. You know, mm-hmm. and that's, I think that's a general problem. I don't think it's an African problem. Mm-hmm. Just like in Africa, it was felt 
much more sharply because there were a few number of people involved mm-hmm. and the issues at stake were great issues at stake. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine the whole <laughs> 20 years of Africa's depression, if you like, the focus was on stabilization and efficient allocation of resources. Mm-hmm. And, and no, nothing was said of mobilization of resources. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the thing that that was really strange that mm-hmm. uh, you would have thought that growth and structural change the old economics, whatever one says about it, was focused on those things, mm-hmm. growth and structural change. Mm-hmm. We may not have <laughs> analyzed it properly, but the, mm-hmm. the, the focus was definitely right, correct. And now, of course, it's come back, you know, it's a big thing now, structures, you know, structures and our economies are studying those things. So do you think s- still today people are, in African universities are not studying structural change, that they're sort of... I have actually... I have a... <laughs> I have, a, I have a, a nephew who's doing economics, and he sent me just come this morning. This morning, he sent me a list of things that he's studying. Okay. I don't know how they're doing it, but it was a long list of things he was studying in economics. And <laughs> he's, a, he's a student. He's in Malawi. He's an undergraduate. I was quite amused by it because the, the list was quite was quite long, and and I said to myself, how yeah, well, how are they studying at all? No, the things they were studying were relevant issues. Eh? Oh. There were just so many of them. That's good then. Yeah, no, I thought I thought there was some progress. Thing, you know. Yeah, this this was the list you sent. Me. <laughs> oh, they're good things. <laughs> I like economic trick theory as after. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, so, so I suppose things are happening. You know, mm-hmm. they're happening. <clears throat> they're happening. Maybe it's a reflection of this. Even also the, the the obvious needs for skills in transport economics or infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Maybe. So, in terms of variation across African countries, are there any parts or any either countries or universities that you feel maintained a kind of intellectual space for economists or more kind of hetero, you know, a mixture? More heterodoxy. I think it was more in Nigeria, probably. And why is that? It's a sheer size. And I think no, Nigeria is not a consultancy world. You know, it's not there are not a lot of people, NGOs, and all that. The community is large enough to sustain you. Mm-hmm. It's not like kind of Malawi, you know, maybe five, ten economists. You know, and they're all competing for the same contracts. So that's mm-hmm. that's different. Mm-hmm. I was hoping South Africa would have more heterodox mm-hmm. economists. You know. mm-hmm. And but it doesn't. I I don't think it happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I thought. So I've reached my last question which is decolonization should not just be about decolonizing, decolonizing scholarship on African countries, but about decolonizing scholarship on Europe and North America as well. So using scholarship from other parts of the world to challenge the taking-for-granted assumptions about development and economic history in mm. Europe or the U.S. So as an economist, what are the insights or ideas might economists or economic historians working on other parts of the world take from scholarship from within African countries? If nothing else, we provide huge amounts of empirical <laughs> material, there's more than 50 states, you know, so <laughs> if you're going to run a, run a regression about anything and you leave out Africa, you've left half of the global cases, eh? and, mm-hmm. and, and people run regressions on, on 50 European, you know, 50 countries, and so that's a, a, mm-hmm. a universal. So it's, it's quite obvious, even if you, there were no theoretical contributions from Africa, mm-hmm there will be sufficient case studies contribution that mm-hmm. one should pay attention to the African, you know, African mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People have written a lot of what was learned from African by other people. I understand that, for instance, uh, 
Stieglitz is a question of uncertainty and, you know, in, in, in it is uh, um, asymmetric information. Mm-hmm. He got that from when his year he spent in Kenya, in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. There was a group of young American scholars who were, were paid by Rockefeller Foundation to spend some time at the IDS. Mm-hmm. You know, it was him and there was a Tobin. Oh, Tobin. Tobin. Yeah. And this guy who wrote about migration in, in Africa. They became aware of the, the complexity of the assumptions. And at least Stiglitz has said so himself. Mm-hmm. There's a story about Stiglitz, I cannot confirm it, but they mm-hmm. say that once he was driving from uh, uh, Nairobi to Mombasa, mm-hmm. and they hit the cow, somebody's mm-hmm. cow. From the bush came the owner and screaming at them and all that, mm-hmm. and asking to be paid for the beast. And so they paid him. As they drove away, Stiglitz would look on the rearview mirror and he found that the cow had got up and was walking like anybody else. You know? And that, that gave me the idea of asymmetric information that the farmer knew something we didn't know, you know, so we paid him, but he knew the cow was dead, he was going to get up and walk. And I've read, and there's another book actually written by Paul Collier. It was in a book called contributions of the African experience in, you know, in social sciences, that he had a number, number of examples of material that has drawn on African experience. Mm-hmm. Not by Africans. Mm-hmm. This was by people. By, uh, he, he wrote about expatriates working in Africa who had come uh, and stick this one is classic of that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know... I mean, one of the things I think, think about that I've kind of learned is this idea of paying attention to the periodization of history. Yes, yes. And then applying that lesson to think about European models of development. I think that, yeah, that, that I think is a, the, the strange thing about Africa, you would have thought that, and maybe that's where this whole trick about the Great Revol- Depression method, the fact that it was erased from the literature, mm. it meant it d- denied a major break, mm. Eh? Mm. And, 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 and yet if you just look at the graph, it's quite obvious that something happened, you know, mm. and that this period must be treated differently, you yeah? mm. uh, But it, there was a, by some trick or other, uh, the, the break was simply mm. elided, with, uh, and, and, and so people would write about neo-patrimonialism based on the Depression, you know, yeah. you know? And, and that was it. So they, they didn't have to explain what happened before the Depression mm. and what happened after the Depression. Mm. That is a general lesson for all of us that you know yeah. they are, and Europeans are aware of this periodization. You know, they, mm-hmm. they talk about the golden age of capitalism up to '73, and from '73 there was you know the neoliberal mm-hmm. age, and then global. Yeah, I think there's much more awareness of that mm-hmm. than, at least in the African case, where the whole thing was mm-hmm. was just seen as one big flop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what, for example, can African experiences tell us about? sort of develop the, the challenge of developmental states, for example? In my paper on, <laughs> on developmental state, I said something, somebody reminded me recently, that the developmental state was seen, was developed, was a, sort of explaining success story in, you know, Asia. Mm. It was not prepared for crisis either, mm. okay? Mm. And I argue that actually it's, it's, one should look at developmental states not only the successful cases, mm-hmm. that sometimes it can reach challenges it cannot solve, you know, mm-hmm. they just, just overwhelmed at least for a, for a period. Uh, that lesson, fortunately, unfortunately, Asian countries recovered quite quite quickly, so people have mm-hmm. forgotten that, you know. But when it recovered, when you talk to some of the Asian scholars, they tell you that the recovery, things have changed. 
I think the general story that for economists especially, well, yes. not all social scientists, history matters. You know, mm-hmm. it matters a lot. You know. mm-hmm. And you see it when people ignore your history that it really, really does a lot of damage. And that I think, even what we've been trying to do in our lectures, just to make students be aware that you know this time passes, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. that is a general problem. We should be this this timeless mm-hmm. theorizing about. About society, you know, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. That makes sense in general. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I read a really nice article this week by um, the second author is Raven Hill, and it's called Beyond Product Cycles and Flying Geese. Ah, okay, yes, Have yes, yes. yes. No, I'm not reading that. It's from 1996. Oh, okay, okay. But the point of it is that, that um, Japan, like people aren't. Re- Asian countries aren't replicating the Japanese model no, no. because Japan kind of retained the sort of more knowledge-intensive activities yes, yes, yes. and outsourced <coughs> yes, know, exactly. other activities. Yes, exactly, yes. So it's not like other countries vacate the stage, right? The stage is always changing. Yes, yes. And yes, the yes. challenge is always changing. That, and in a sense, was the message of Geshen Kron, isn't it? The yeah. Geshen Kron's yeah. argument against the... Rosto, you know, Rosto has this theory of mm-hmm. stages, and Gershon said, "No, if you, that's not how human beings behave. If somebody has been there ahead of you, that affects. Yeah. If you see that person jumping, yeah. you will also jump. You don't have to wait. Mm-hmm. If you fall, you don't have to do the same. Learning and emulation is as human mm-hmm. uh, nature as it says. And I have the same problem with the students. Somehow, they list all the obstacles mm-hmm. to African development now." Is WTO, the, the whole list of things. I mean, but how Africa do that? Yeah, okay, if you look at every country's development, at some stage it had a list of forbidding constraints, you know, mm. and they solved them, you know, either by borrowing ideas from others or by, you know, mm. finding new solutions to their own. Economic history is interesting. The German histo- historical school, who are really the founders of development thinking, seriously, mm. you know, and all the big names in development, you know, the Caldos, you name them, they, they all came from Central Europe. And because they were obsessed with the reconstruction of Central Europe. Okay. Mm-hmm. And before that, the Germans were obsessed with catching up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Britain never bothered about that. Britain was the leading. You, you are just supposed to, all of us, to become like, like UK. Mm-hmm. And the Germans challenged that. And it's interesting they challenged that because it, had they taken the linear view seriously, they would never have developed. So do you think, therefore, for part of the developmental challenge is around having knowledge and economic models that are kind of embedded within the challenge at hand? Yes, yes, yes. yes, yeah. yes. And probably, you know, by definition, yeah, you know, of course economics has to have its rigor and, you know, and its modeling and all that. Yeah, when you read Arthur Lewis, people will remember, they only remember the model of Arthur Lewis, you know. But you read his text, you know, and his footnotes and all that, and so many questions he's raising, you know. Mm-hmm. And people just take the, oh, they said, oh, Lewis' model was people moving people from rural to urban areas. Mm-hmm. That's not what Lewis was about. I mean, mm-hmm. he wrote a model, but he has other things he was worrying about. Mm-hmm. So I think history matters in the sense that you become aware of context. Eh? That's very mm-hmm. important. Uh, mm-hmm. Context and, and even a little bit of path dependence, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, you are aware of there are many determinants of anything. They are not one to one thing, you know. The nuance. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
-hmm. And there's this habit you're looking for, the one determinant all the time. Mm -hmm. So do you you think having sort of a a knowledge system that's embedded within the context means that you'll have more careful modelling? Yes, yes. I mean, the argument the Germans, like like Frederick List, you know, they had against the Ricardo. The Ricardo had a model which they thought was benefiting Britain, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they were and they didn't accept that, mm-hmm. and and it helped them, you know, to to jump stages. Mm-hmm. If they had really believed and waited and go through like you know one competitive advantage after another one, they would never have made it. You know, mm-hmm. same thing with the Chinese. The Koreans did not imitate Japan. If they did, they would have made a big mistake. Mm-hmm. You know. They learned a lot, but uh, one thing they learned was what thing to skip in Japanese mm-hmm. history. Yeah? I suppose one day people will be, able to, will, will be able to model things. Because some of the problems with economics, economics has had a habit of what it can't formalize does not exist. I mean, Paul Krugman was explaining once how what was wrong with development economics, the old one, and he said they didn't know the mathematics. You know, if they had formalized those things, they'd be accepted. He has a point in terms of the academic needs. But the more interesting thing about those people is not that they didn't have the mathematics, but that they were had very powerful uh, capacity for reasoning and mm-hmm. bringing things together. That uh, mm-hmm. you get, you read Heschman, you say, "My God, how did this guy get all this thing together?" You know? mm-hmm. Now we cannot model that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe one day we model. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that there's not enough like data points being collected at the moment to really have a model of what is happening within African economies or African societies to be able to model it in a kind of scientific way. Yeah, well, this is not only about Africa. I mean, the very fact that no economists could not predict the crisis in Europe just tells you that yeah. they, they don't have a model. You know, in the old days, we spent a lot of time studying cycles and, mm. you know... You know, conductive of circles, and, and it looks silly, but actually, that's what will help you predict things. You know, mm-hmm. these very crude cycles and things happen. You know. So we went on these very refined models where the whole reality is removed, mm-hmm. with zero predictive value. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's where we are now. Yeah. So it's not just about it's just that the economics. I think has a problem. You know, in, yeah. in sense of. A, but I guess in, in African countries, there's less investment in knowledge infrastructures generally. Yes. And so you have even less data. You know, like yeah. maybe even the models are deficient because even in an environment like, like Britain where there's all sorts of surveillance of one yes. kind of another, they're still getting... You know, this is a, a big problem in Africa. I mean, I, I've written a little bit about that. that most societies have... The state has some kind of organic link with some intellectuals, some intelli- part of the intelligentsia who are part of the state. You know, like in Britain, you know, all these LSCs, Oxford, you know, they're part of the establishment. Okay? And many of the members of staff here, they mix quite well with this thing. In Africa, that never grew up. That relationship between the state and these universities, only in South Africa, when the Africana regime had universities like Stellenbosch and... Pretoria, University of Pretoria, and all that. Those were part of the apartheid regime, and they were help, they helped write the laws and design the cities, you know, all those things. African leaders, all of them had expatriates as advisors, including the great ones like Nkrumah, you know, and Nyerere, and all that. They all had expatriates as advisors. They had very bad relationship with their universities. And when I read about the French, during the 1968 riots, Jean Paul Sartre, the philosopher, was leading one of the groups. 
So the chief of the commissioner of police calls Charles de Gaulle and says, Look, Sartre is leading this. Should we arrest him? And de Gaulle said, No, you can't arrest France. You know, <laughs> this man is France. You know, yeah. this intellectual is France. Mm. That is amazing. Mm. We don't have that. No. Yeah. If somebody tried to arrest you in Malawi, oh, they'd be happy. <laughs> they'd, they'd kill him. <laughs> I actually have written an article about that, this, this distance between mm. the African intelligentsia and the state. Mm. So the, these most ridiculous problems, mm. they'll bring an expert advisor who will then, if he's generous, mm. go to university and, and hire some people's consultants to write a report, which he will then present to the government, and the government will be very happy. You know, that's, mm. that's a, mm. And that, I don't know how to change that. Mbeki when he was the president, he, he always attacked the um, black intellectuals in South Africa not coming up. No, but actually, he wanted them to be praise singers for him. That's what Africans thought. Af when the Africans engaged with the universities, they wanted you to, to write a praise, mm. a book praising the president. You know? mm. uh, but just the idea of imagining that these universities are kind of critical components of our strategy, mm. they didn't have that. You know? Do you think that's changed over time? Well, I was in, in Dakar for the general Kodesia, and uh, no, the people said, okay, there is a little change is that because of, of elections and all that, people are now looking for intellectuals to help them write their manifestos and all that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and and because the press matters, there's a kind of a, tur a turn to the intellectuals to help them write manifestos or, you know. Uh, but the, the the idea that these these universities are, are ours and they're only useful if they have some critical faculties, you know, mm. has yet to you know, mm. it's but changing. But they're just the, the 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 student body is bigger, you know, mm. and uh, and African universities and and I think the, the other actors, the NGOs, they're looking for in, you know input from universities for you know for their mm. speech writing or for their you know writing. So there is this kind of a change that. Mm. But it's kind of a space for thoughtfulness. Like, how do you cultivate that? That's very complicated. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also amazed, you know, when you, when you go to other countries, when you go, you know, like in Sweden now, you know, you realize how many people of the university are just normal part of the paraphernalia of the state. Mm. <laughs> you, know? Mm. you know? In Malawi, he, uh, he went to the prime minister's office, then you're sold out, or... You've been arrested. So it's <laughs> my positive side of the story is that mm -hmm. the numbers are increasing. The, the, the African universities, the quality may be suffering, but the we're now talking of eight million Africans going to universities. You know? that, that's yeah. big, you know? mm -hmm. and it's the fastest growing university population in the world. Yeah. And and I think there's been a reversal in terms of the decline of quality in some of the key key countries like. Senegal, mm -hmm. Gambia, and Ghana, and all that. You know, mm -hmm. There's been a major yeah. reverse, reverse Tanzania, mm -hmm. and with a little bit of democracy and the, uh, in a sense, the the erosion of the leverage of the World Bank types. You know, mm -hmm. there's, more, there's more space, mm -hmm. yeah. and you can see it from the novelist perspective, as usual mm -hmm. in Africa. You, you start reading about. Mm -hmm. Or music and you know film, they are mm -hmm. way out there. You know, mm -hmm. universities have been slow. In that. I would argue, by the way, that you know it's one of those things, and I'm glad you're doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. That 
I have some complaint in a number of places that nobody takes African thinking seriously. It, 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 it need not be the correct. It need not be correct thinking. You know, it's not matter what it is. Just you have just know what it is. What why, what are they thinking? And you know, if you don't know what they're thinking, uh, one of these things the World Bank officials expressed to us many times, they could not understand that they they never ceased being opposed by universities. Uh, so in that sense, the anti-structural adjustment people, we won the battle. They use muscle eventually money, but mm. but in terms of legitimacy and conviction, of no, they never managed to convince us. Mm. And that puzzled them a lot. Mm. So they just said, okay, well, they are all oh, African universities, they're ignorant, they have not mm. traveled. Somebody even said, we have not traveled, traveled enough and all that. Mm. Yeah. That's why we're against structural adjustment. They didn't acquire the kind of intellectual hegemony they thought they would over the mm. university. They controlled economics, of course. One of the things that frustrates me is that there are so many political scientists studying African politics, yes. but I'm not convinced that they capture what people's political imagination is. No, they don't do that. And I don't know... They start with the assumption that Africans have got no ideology. Okay. Mm. In the extreme, like Pokoli, they assume Africans are there because of greed, you know, mm. or self-interest, whatever it is. So, you, st- you start from there, then you Ideas are not interesting, you know. If, if you tell some people being driven by all kinds of ideas of nationalism or, you know, as you call it, political imagination, those are denied right in the beginning by the assumption of, I assume a rational individual who is performing, you know, pursuing um, individual interests, blah, 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 and that this person only gets into politics because he, wants to, or, he or she wants to pursue this interest. That's it. It's the extreme form of materialism, you know. People tell you're against Marx because Marx is a materialist. I say, but you're worse. At least Marx accepted was a, you know, a superstructure, you know, of ideas. You know? Mm. <laughs> you know? But I sometimes think the reason we don't have a way of, of you know, the, 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 the political science is, to me, slightly unsatisfactory, is that people don't speak the languages that they're studying. Yeah, that's another problem. You know, that... that Surely yeah. to know what people think, you yes, have yes. to be able to hear them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yes. Yeah. And, I think and even the words, i just take, give an example in my, my country. The word for politics, the local word for politics, is so damning. Mm-hmm. It's indalizadziko, which mm-hmm. means tricks of the, of the state. You know? mm-hmm. That's politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And that's something I've understood. So whenever I say, ah, it means andaliz means that's politics. It, it's seen... Mm-hmm. Negative. Eh? The word is so negative, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know, unless you understand that, you just oh, Africans like politics. But the, actually, the word mm-hmm. <laughs> that is that is negative. You know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but then that would sort of lead you to think of a very cynical version of politics that is just about trickery. And yes, 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 and it came. Yeah. This uh, ironically, it in Malawi anyway. I know the guy who coined the word. You know, mm-hmm. it was at the rally mm-hmm. in 1961, and there was a journalist at that time, and he. Somebody said he was translating from English mm. and he says politics and he says, ah, politics, politics. You know, and that is a zero. Mm. <laughs> and that word stuck. You know? I mean, Malawi is a time to remove it, <laughs> but mm. it stuck and gave a very bad impression of what, it, what it, politics is all about. And unfortunately, a lot of our key actors have confirmed the point that it's just tricks. Yeah. But you're right about the language, you know. that. But see, again, there's one guy who was writing on Malawi. Malawi politics. He was not extreme you know, because he, he was kind of postmodernist mm. discourse analysis. So he, had, he knew the language very well. Mm. You know? He was a Finnish guy, and some of the stuff 
were really impressive that because mm. he he would talk to people, local people would explain mm. the same thing in their local language, and they would have a very different view from. Yeah. Mm. So that, in a sense, is evidence how knowing the language makes a difference. Mm. But then you you realize that the politics today, which is in looking for the views of this fragmented, isolated, the rational individuals, doesn't need language. <laughs> you mm. know. Mm. You know, this guy is okay. He's, he's in producing maize, mm. so he's going to support a policy for maize, mm. and that's it. Mm. But do you think that's the way in which people vote? One of the assumptions that some of the new research in Africa is showing the earlier view that Africans vote for personal gain. And in practice, some politicians went around giving gifts during the campaign in Malawi. It's interesting, Tony Blair sent a bunch of uh, young people to advise Joyce Banda. And one of the things they advised her was to go around giving these prizes. And she lost elections. And the guy who, who ran against him, there's one district he won, big time. And he had, not, he had not been there. He had been there only once to open a highway. Okay. Mm. And it was in the north, and he was from the south. Mm. And people voted overwhelmingly. So there is that evidence now growing up showing that actually Africans do not vote. If you give them pennies and money, they won't vote for you. They'll get the money, but they won't vote for you. Mm. That they vote for public goods. Mm. Build a school or build a bridge or build a road. Mm. Some very good studies on, on Ghana. On, by some. Mm. I think one, one thing is going to save uh, social sciences are these mindless young researchers that run regressions on anything, you know? Because they're they disproving all these theories, you know, about how Africans vote, you know. Uh, I don't think they, they were intended to do that, but they just run a regression as, oh, actually, they don't vote according to what the new patrimonialism says. They actually voted for very clear public good. Mm-hmm. But then it's kind of totally, how do you sort through the noise, you know, like, because for example... Well, yeah, I mean... Like, in... in the UK or the U- like in the US, why do people vote for Trump? Is that ra- is that based on self interest and, and rationality, or even some dif- difference between public goods and private goods? Yes. Or do we need to actually try and understand the worldview? The, the point is that I don't think that political science is clearer in Europe or America than it is in Africa. I think yeah. it, it, it suffers the same problem, you know. Yeah. That once you begin from this premise of very simple materialistic interest. Yeah. You erase politics. Yeah. yeah. No yeah. imagination. But neoclassical theory is very powerful in its assumptions. You know? mm. It means that th- this person, there's no envy, mm-hmm. there's no solidarity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All the things that matter in politics are not yeah. there, you know? But I think and that's that true. Of, so it's, it's not doing well in like It's not like explaining things well in America and failing in Africa. It's not... But I, I do think that a U.S. political scientist studying American politics yeah. will be on some news report with somebody who's not a political scientist, and they'll say something and they'll be challenged. Yes, right? yes, yes. And they 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 exist oh, yeah. within a society that can say that what they're saying is bullshit. You know, if it's wrong. But that's not you know. But in their journals, nobody says that. See, the, the yeah, thing about what I'm saying is the, the academic world has created its own universe, you know? Yeah. And in that universe, mm. there will be a lot of puzzles, mm. like how come people voted for, uh, you know, for mm. Trump, and they'll be seen as a puzzle, mm. at best, if they really take into account. Mm. Uh, but otherwise, 
the, the public debate on American television and all that has very little to do with academic debates, you know? But in I that do sense. think that... It's Unless you become a guru. If you're a guru, then you're a peer. But then I think it, it can be embarrassing. If you make if, a mistake on that level. Like if you, well, if you... For example, the fact that nobody predicted Trump. Who is embarrassed? No, Academics? I think so. Like, British... People who study British politics and no, none of these people predicted Brexit. Yes. You know... You think they're embarrassed? And I think now there is this lurch to explain Brexit, right? Because it's embarrassing that they no, nobody knew it. And I do think... Honestly, I wish academics had a capacity to be embarrassed. You know, I, I don't think... Look, so many things have gotten wrong and we have not been able... And, and we just move on to next, you know? Maybe you're right. You know? I, I do think uh, there I mean, is I see some the, the, the social pressure not to say things that are completely not true. Who would you... Okay, so let's say this university now. Mm. Which professor would you think should be embarrassed by Brexit? Whoever studies British politics, you know, and yes. gets interviewed on Newsnight and, you know, I unfortunately spend disproportionate attention paying attention to African news. The thing that I think what maybe one day will happen... That university practice and a day-to-day -day practice mm. must be an object of news, you know. <laughs> there are some websites I've seen you know, mm. where people sort of are either writing about economics as news, eh? mm. who said what, or who published what in what journal said this, mm. and you know and what mm. it means. Maybe that's what internet will do, you know. It, mm. it will create these people who can read an article and write. A, a brief critique about this academic article, and so these people were sitting. I mean, I read, I read sometimes stuff here that two articles I read in a couple of days. One was by Paul Collier, uh, basically calling call for recolonization of Africa. Mm. Another one by a with mystery, mystery, Peter mystery. I think it was Dutch, mm. saying the same thing at donor meetings. Okay, mm. now <laughs> I wish there was some kind of a journalist who just reads those those academics. And gives them the interpretation what they mean in real life. You know. mm. It's happening a little bit because they are, you know, yeah. there are some young economists who just report on mm. journal, academic journal articles, what they say, what they mean, you know. Yeah, but um, I do think that there is a difference between a, an American political scientist studying U.S. politics yes. as an American who has an American family, an American school yes, or yes. whatever versus American political scientists studying Malawi that don't have any yes, yes. social yeah. pressures. No, Africa in that sense, but I mean, I was reading an article that day, uh, <laughs> it was very funny. It was a written, uh, it was a critique of two economists here at, um, who had written an article saying that labor legislation in India hurts economic growth. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was about three, four years ago. And it had a huge impact in India, the, that article. Mm -hmm. So the mean, all these right, you know, protection of workers were undermined by that article. Mm -hmm. So somebody has written an article showing that the statistics was wrong. Mm -hmm. they, were, they had no evidence. In fact, the evidence was pointing contrary. That, mm -hmm. you know, the areas where labor was protected, the growth was faster. And I just said, nobody's picking it up. This, you know, mm. it was, a, you know, it was a two leading, uh, leading economists you know, here, mm. and they wrote on India. So if you write something, if you write rubbish about India, Indians will answer you, mm. yeah, mm. almost immediately. Because there are so many Indians in the US, there are so many Indians, you know, mm. and they put the Economic and Political Weekly and all that. So they will answer mm. you immediately. Africa, no. Mm. Yeah. 
African women. We don't have. Mm. Um, bullshit is allowed to bullshit. <laughs> you can bullshit. You can say crap in Africa. You know there'll be no response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've taken upon myself that as long as I live, I will time time sit down and review whatever is being written on Africa and then respond. Mm. <laughs> but even near patrimonialism mm. and just. Uh, mm. But I talk. I mean, once I was giving a lecture. Uh, no, it was me and Nicholas, uh, Nicholas Deval and all that, and 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 I was criticizing your patrimonialism. Mm-hmm. And there was an Eritrean woman. She came to me after and says, "You know, you're very courageous." <laughs> and she was just tr- beginning an academic career. You know? mm-hmm. We cannot say that what you're mm-hmm. saying, you know, mm-hmm. because these we are t- all the people have attacked. These are uh, you know they're the gatekeepers. They control mm-hmm. scholarship. They control the journal. They mm-hmm. control the promotion. They got, you know. Mm-hmm. So you can't. I see, I, I'm beyond that now. I can, I can say anything <laughs> I want. I'm not, uh... Let's try and end this on a high note. Good. So what you're kind of saying is that you don't need to be an academic to critique academics writing on Africa. Is that right? Yeah. That we need actually we need just ordinary, a good journalist who can take an article that contains rubbish. Well, good, good ma- master. You know, in, in India there. <laughs> look, in in here in Britain. We forget that in here in Britain, lots of critique or support of intellectual work appears in the Economist, New Statesman. Mm-hmm. There is, you can see that this this journalist has is talking about this mm-hmm. view, you know, in academia. There are very few countries in Africa which has a lively uh, Economist, New Statesman level. African Americans have nothing to read. I mean, you go to any country, they're just tabloids like anybody else. Mm. What's interesting about this project is is thinking of all the ways that you can think about decolonization. And something people don't necessarily talk about that much is kind of decolonizing the way we think about newspapers and journalism. Yes, 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 yes. And the role that journalism can play. Yes, yes. You know. Um, And one thing that does make me kind of hopeful is the kind of playful cheekiness of organizations like Africa as a country yes, yes, somebody yes. says something that's bullshit yes, it's come, and yes, they yes. get attacked yes, in yes. a funny kind of way exactly, yes. that's just showing it I think they're setting, the a, they're, they're setting up a good example they're setting up a good example Africa will use the internet very different, you watch this mm. you know? because in many ways we're skipping certain stages right? Mm. Uh, I, mean, I have, you know, I have my nieces, and they, they don't read newspapers, but they rely on internet, you know, for getting all kinds of discussions going. Sometimes they, you know, in their own little team, they do, uh, and they just need good bloggers, you know, mm. to organize things for them, you know, mm. uh, and that that's where they, where where Africa may go, because you know? mm. uh, Africa has to run mm. <laughs> while others walk, as I said, you know, yeah. and, they, and they will have to do that, you know. But I, I must say, you know, uh, that I think this kind of work of just understanding or bringing out what Africans think, it's, a, it's mm-hmm. not a question of whether it's right or wrong, it's not important, it's just that uh, this is the, these are the kinds of things that are worrying Africans. Or, or mm-hmm. I think it's very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah? It's very important. I'm, I, when I go to Africa, a lot of things surprise me in Africa, you know. Even here, some of the students who are from Africa, you know, when I talk mm-hmm. to them, Fifteen years ago, I was in Nairobi, gave a lecture, mm. and it was question time. Mm. And to my surprise, students knew almost everything I had read. 
Where did you get the articles? You know, because your, your library is not working. Mm-hmm. He says, oh, no, there's no problem. You know, there's a, there's a man up there. You pay him, and he has all these passwords mm-hmm. <laughs> from American University. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And he'll print out the paper for you, you know. Mm-hmm. So you download for you and print it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, oh, of course, and I realized, of course, there's a lot of exchange of uh, memory sticks and all that, with you know, PDF mm-hmm. files and all that, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know. And that every academic having a memory stick is very important because that's how they get these things circulated mm-hmm. without being online. So mm-hmm. they find their ways around these things. You know. I heard something about that, that in Cuba they have um, made uh, USB sticks that you can transfer files without a computer. Really? So if you have a USB stick and I have a USB stick, we can plug them in <laughs> transfer files to, to kind of get around anything. This is Sighting Africa.